Up next is poet Justin Weimer, who has also released a new book entitled Deed. Hey, Justin, how's it going today? Uh, It's going pretty well. It's a little bit warm in Denver, but I'm happy to talk to you. Me as well. I'm glad we could do this. Um, I'm jealous of your 92 degrees in Denver because Louisiana has just been miserable right now. Yeah, it sounds like hot bathwater in here. It's just kind of a scratchy carpet. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, enjoy it while you got it. Uh, We will try and get through as well. Um, Well, well, thank you. I'm so glad to talk to you about your your new book, Deed, uh, which just came out recently. Um, to yeah. kind of start off, I want to pivot away from the book itself and talk a little bit about the beginning of your writing, of looking at poetry. And I was wondering if you remember your first poem that you ever wrote, and if you could tell us a little bit about it. <laughs> the first poem I ever wrote. I can definitely remember the first poem that I read that sort of inspired me to start writing poetry because it worked a different way than what I was familiar with. Does, does that count? We'll take it. That's good. Okay. Um, so it was a Sylvia Plath poem, The Night Dances, which is from her final collection, Ariel. But it's a characteristic of that collection that it's not a very dark poem. But I remember in sixth grade, I had ordered um, this scholastic book order book that was called The Best Poems Ever. And it has this lovely cover with these kind of watercolor trees. And I remember reading that poem over and over, and the line that caught in my imagination was the drenched grass smell of her of his sleeps, lilies, lilies, their flesh bears no relation. And I carried that line with me, I would say, for about six years. And I would say in my 11th or 12th grade year of high school, I wrote my first poem, which had something to do with being in a hallway and having sort of gray fleece socks that were actually the ghosts of my ancestors. So, I, <laughs> I mean, in a way, that was the first poem um, that I wrote in earnest. But I always wrote little ditties before then. I think the first one was probably something about dinosaurs. Oh, I love that. What kind of dinosaur do you remember? <clears throat> hmm. I think I was really... What's the one who, that no longer exists because it was actually a symbiotic relationship? Oh, that, it was... Oh, was it Brontosaurus? Brontosaurus? Yes, that one. The one with a really, really long neck. I thought it looked like the stem of a flower or something like that, and that was the extent of my, you know, second-grade conceit. <laughs> no, I think that that's great. And uh, what about that Sylvia Plath poem, that, that, that phrase, really... Why were you so taken by it? The drenched grass smell of their sleeps, lilies, lilies... Their flesh bears no relation. I mean, in a way, that's a kind of a vague or a soft synesthesia relating drenched grass smell of their sleeps to sort of a broken relationship and still finding a tender moment of watching someone sleep despite, I don't know, the difficulty that such a terrible relationship as one with Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath could engender. I don't know, the idea of softness, softness related to nature and nature related to the body was something that formed part of my belief system as I write poems, even from an early age. No, I could see that. And it's pretty um, evident in the book itself, you know, deed right here, um, this fascination with nature, with flora and fauna and coming back to that, it's really lovely and really uh, a taut piece of writing throughout these poems in here. I, I really love them. And I, I kind of, to move back to the book, um, how did this collection start coming together? 
how did this collection start coming together? So it started coming together when I was an undergraduate. I would say the earliest poem in this collection I wrote before I could even legally buy a beer. <laughs> um, and I won't tell you which one because I don't want you to know. Um, and I started writing poems as a conduit um, to create this conduit, this crystallization of frenetic emotion into which I could pour all of the excess thoughts or feelings that I had that didn't necessarily fit in traditional curricula because at the time I was still studying chemistry and that, I mean, although I love chemistry and there are tons of analogs between the making of a poem and the making of a chemical compound, there wasn't a lot of room for emotion in chemistry classes. So I started writing as, in a way, a sort of therapy, uh, you know, creating a tangible void that I could talk into. And if it didn't talk back, at least I could read it back to myself. Yeah, no, I think that that's super important, kind of finding that middle space where you can't really, a format that can kind of encapsulate that. That's really kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And so with undergrad, this has been progressing for a long period of time. So have you just been coming back to these poems, re-editing them, and trying to structure them together? Mm, yeah, so this collection has gone through so many iterations. I would say six or seven, because some of the poems are from my undergraduate thesis, which was entitled... Genius Loki, which is still a a poem in the book, and then part of my master's thesis, which was entitled Certain Extinguishing Hours, which is a line in one of the poems. And then most of the poems I wrote during my master's, and then some of the poems I wrote when I was living abroad in Spain. Mm. So the book kind of came together in that I felt, as someone who writes occasional discrete poems, I had to put these these objects together, and they each had their own energy vortex. It was as if I was trying to put magnets together. Hmm. And I was convinced that if I could just get the magnets to like one another or dislike one another in a really interesting way, some judge would be magnetized by the book. (laughs) Well, obviously they were then. (laughs) <laughs> it took a long time, lots of money. No, I get that. I get that. Well, Justin, I was wondering, could you share one of the poems from the book with us? Sure. So I'd like to read the, the title poem of the book, which is Deed. So I'll begin. Deed. And what owns the silos of grain will rest will curdle from the heat of too many bodies' quick gates through open air. Should I wait my turn to liquefy into thick bluish mud, or should I remain clipped to secret greenery, stayed in the latticework of eyes I choose not to meet, and the swirling roads of ember etched in my palms, clenching prostrate when the dogwood I own lets its spindly progeny squeeze its shins and groins. It is my glances turned to quicken the danger of handing heat over. Look, it laves its loose breasts over everything, yet nothing drinks more than its fill. The body saves milky records of sickness so it can distinguish the rancid cloak of love when it nudges its roofs. When it regains the cancerous glow that clothes and owns the hollows, one cannot decant. Tell me silence will not always have a taste. Tell me the hairy, halite bedclothes that chew my skin never chip their teeth. Tell me I will never learn to punish. Meanwhile, I learn to identify which season sickness sleeps in. 
Nothing redeemable ever screams. It can't be smoked out of the shrubs that line every eye. So do not embroider a face distinct from any other. Do not. You will never grow exempt. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Um, nothing redeemable ever screams. I, I, I love your lines and how precise you are, but it, it's never tedious reading your work. It flows so easily. What does the editing process look like for you? Okay. So the editing process has changed throughout the years, but to sort of give like the basis of what I do when I edit is that most of my poems come out in blocks unless I give, my, give myself the constraint of writing in a certain stanzaic form or writing a prose poem, etc. So a lot of times it's going back and cutting lines and rearranging lines based on, you know, reader perception. I think a reader would want this bit of sensory information in this line and this bit of sensory information in the following line, or trying to make the lines themselves exist as microcosms. So if you read a line in D, for an example, um, decant, tell me silence will not always have a taste. I like to read uh, lines as microcosms because you can think of the action of decanting, of emptying something of a liquid or an essence, and what happens when you empty yourself of an essence, you're left with silence. Mm. Um, so I like poems to exist as their own little worlds that can give you a way into the poem themselves. No, I think that's really lovely and really interesting and kind of um, putting all these things together, juxtaposing them, it makes for really interesting readings of your work and, and just kind of different levels that you can kind of associate different things with. I think that that's really cool. Thank um, you. Well, of course. Um, I know that West Virginia, where you're from initially, uh, and the landscape there plays a large part in this book. I was wondering if you could talk about that and that kind of inspiration and kind of uh, going home in your work with that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned home. Um, I'll get back to that in yeah. a minute. So for a long time, I reacted against West Virginia. I, I moved away. I changed my accent before I moved away so I wouldn't be associated with what I saw as a place that was backward and tedious. But I think for a long time, I was just focused on the negative instead of the positive. Then I went to college and I worked with the, the poet Jory Graham, and at the time I was trying to write these city poems. I had a fellowship to go to New York and I was following in Lorca's footsteps and trying to inhabit the genius Loki of the place and write poems there. But I noticed that even when I was in New York, I was focused on the malingering weed or the lily that had been trampled or the rotting flower pots, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. and. I came back with this suite of poems and was talking to Jory, and she just said, you know, Justin, lots of times people try to be nature's, nature poets, but they don't know what the hell nature is. So why don't you just lean into it? And from that point on, I sort of, I guess, walked into the forest of my imagination using this set of naturalistic images um, that populated my imaginary to make sense of the world, even if what I was making sense of wasn't something that was organic. And West Virginia gave me that. Wow. Interesting. And you, you had mentioned that idea of home being a little uncomfortable for you or just not kind of not wincing, but, but something more in that. Could you, could you go on about that? Yeah. So 
So home is a place, I've been trying to define home in my work for a long time. Yeah. And home for me isn't necessarily a place where comfort resides, but where part of the self resides, even in a rarefied state. So mm-hmm. for me, West Virginia, I was never super comfortable there um, for a variety of reasons. And it's a, it's a landscape of trauma for me in a lot of ways and a triggering place. But at the same time, my relationship with West Virginia is so energized that I can't help but call it home. Yeah, that's difficult. That That's really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know in your PhD right now at, at Denver, is it University of Denver? University of Denver. Um, you're focusing on quite a few things, um, trauma studies, literature of excess and difficulty and eco-poetics. Um, mm-hmm. Is this a new work that you're trying to put together or is it more research academic oriented? One of the great things about this program is that your academic research feeds into your creative writing. Mm. So the my three comprehensive exams are the trauma narrative genre, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and literature of excess. Mm. All of whom I see, or all of which I see, as having a symbiotic relationship with one another, and that is meant to help me in the creative part of my dissertation, which is a right now 150 page block that I wrote while living abroad in Spain. And a lot of that work is having to do with trauma, and I need to use the tools of narratology and narrative theory to um, texture it in a way that might be amenable to readers, because yeah. right now it's pretty unwieldy, <laughs> and it is very excessive. Yeah. I mean, 150, uh, a block of 150 pages is a lot, even for somebody that wrote it. That That's a, a big time uh, deal trying to go through that, I bet. Yeah, it's all uh, it's all handwritten too. So part of the process involves letting the material transmute and transform as you put it onto a screen, and that's the first step of the editing process of this block actually getting it from the handwritten version to computer screen. That's kind of interesting. So you get to basically translate yourself. Yes, <laughs> translate myself. <laughs> Let it transmute, transfigure, whatever. Yes, all the words. <laughs> Well, uh, to kind of pivot uh, a little bit to something um, more fun, um, not that that wasn't fun, but <laughs> who are some underappreciated poets you wish more people knew about? So one person who comes to my mind is a poet who doesn't yet have a book, um, but her poems are incredible, and in their adherence to strict formalism and sort of, I would say, oblique confession are kind of avant-garde, and her name is Claire Jones, you can check out some of her poems in the Poetry Foundation, and they're absolutely incredible. Another poet, I'm not sure what his reputation is, but I don't feel like people read him quite enough, is the poet Brian Tier, and his book Companion Grasses, and I think he has another book coming out, are both very, very incredible. Oh, well, interesting. Well, we are big fans of Claire Jones here. Uh, we had her on yeah. earlier this year. So, um, oh, cool. Yeah, glad glad to hear that name mentioned and hope she'll come back and visit us at some point. But, um, no, that, that's good to know. And um, I also know, you know, looking at your website, you've done interviews with other poets as well for the Ruppus. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested, uh, as a, another person that interviews authors, what are your favorite questions to ask other poets or other writers? One of the things I like to ask, and sometimes I rephrase it so it doesn't sound like a stock question, is what's at stake in somebody's work? Because in our current political climate, writing a book of poetry or just 
writing a single poem is a sustained act of bravery to talk about the subjective when the collective seems to be crumbling and you know risking war in in a certain way so i like to ask what's at stake in their work and what would happen like what are they trying to change what what do they risk in writing this work yeah no i think that's a great question and so i will uh, echo that back at you. What What is at stake in this book right now, Deed? That's a, that's a very hard question. I can <laughs> see why people might bristle when I ask them that. Um, well, I think the work risks and borders confession. Mm. And subjectivity is something that is inherently condemnable because somebody can say, you feel this way, I disagree with that. This is not a fact, I disagree. Mm-hmm. So I think risking a self that could be criticized in a way for me as somebody who is quite a perfectionist, um, that to me is very, very risky. Another thing that's at stake is um, bringing light to a place that is often overshadowed, West Virginia, and bringing light to an intense subjectivity that is formed by both the good and the bad of that place. And people I know could read it and people I know could be really offended by it or really disagree. And I think the book has a potential to wound people that I love. Yeah, no, I think that that's beautiful and and, and dangerous and it is risky. I think that's really an interesting way of approaching that. Um, Mm -hmm. Outside of other people's writings, what inspires your own work? I would say music and sound not a particular artist, but just the presence of existing rhythms in the world, not to replicate birdsong, for example, mm-hmm. into a work, but to be aware that there is something in making birdsong and then to try to make your own birdsong in a poem. Something else that inspires my work is visual art and um, particularly painting and uh, weird pop sci articles sometimes, <laughs> popular science articles. There's a poem in the book, the DRE poem, that talks about this skin suit um, that people would wear. And that comes from the, I think it's Icelandish, uh, old tradition of necropants. So sometimes I'll be inspired by you know, stories about nature, new plants, or stories about strange rituals that exist somewhere in the world. The word of the day is necropants. <laughs> yeah, necrovans. Go get you a pair. A pair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they would react to that on a birthday celebration, but I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> you know, I'll tell them that Justin said it was okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, Justin, our, our time is is drawing to an end, but I did want to end with a um a question I normally ask people: uh, What are you reading right now, and what's on the horizon for you? Mm-hmm. So right now. I am reading a bunch of books because it's the summer that I study for my comprehensive exam. Mm-hmm. Um, let me look at my let me look at my shelf right here. So currently, I'm reading a book. Well, it's a it's a collection of three novels by Agota Kristoff. Not sure I'm pronouncing that right. The Notebook, The Proof, and The Third Lie, and it's part of my trauma narratives list. It's told from the perspective of two twin boys during um, World War II. And their entire, like every one of their utterances is entirely stripped of affect, which highlights the continuous trauma that they're experiencing. And it's at the end of reading these novels, I just feel broken, but also kind of optimistic because I don't have to live that. Yeah. On the horizon for me, let's see, 
well, <laughs> I will finish my comprehensive exams and then hopefully go some places and finally celebrate and read from this book um, because I haven't had a chance quite yet being in the PhD program. Yeah. Well, I hope you get that because I know that can be a really cathartic experience and a way to kind of re-experience and recontextualize these poems in a, in a new way. So that, that would be really great. Oh, one quick thing I do want to mention. Yeah. Not upcoming, but it just happened is uh, I curated a folio on queer trauma-related literature for Denver Quarterly. And I think it's really incredible and everybody should check it out. Oh, that's awesome. Where, where can people find more information about that? You can look on the Denver Quarterly website. And you can order a copy there. Okay, cool. And I know you have a website as well. Yes, it is www.justinweimer.com. All right. Well, perfect, Justin. Well, well thank you so much for uh, talking with us for a little bit. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.